Are you ready to become toxic person proof? Hey guys, Sarah K. Ramsey here to help you find love and success after a toxic relationship so you can design a life you're actually excited about living. Hello, wonderful. It is Sarah K. Ramsey and I'm here with Lundy Bancroft, who is going to answer the question, why does he do that? How are you, Lundy? I'm doing very fine, sir. How about you? Oh, good. I, I'm, I'm just such a fan of his work. I told him that the first book that I read of his, I had checked out from the library. And as I opened it, I instead of waiting for Amazon to bring me a new one, I just started writing in the library book and ended up buying it because I was just so intrigued to underline and highlight and put my notes in. And it's just been such a gift. Um, so you've written that book, um, Joyous Recovery is your latest book. Is that right? Yes. Um, which definitely aligns with strength-based healing that we, we've talked about. I, uh, and we'll get more into that, as well as When Dad Hurts Mom. Uh, any other books that you want to point out that might be? Uh, they, I wrote a book that's uh, a few years ago that's a, a set of short daily readings. That's, yes. It's, that's, uh, they call it Daily Wisdom for Why Does He Do That, which is a yes. kind of an unfortunate title. That wasn't my idea. That's what's just hard to remember. And daily, it also is the kind of title that makes you say, like, what did you just say? But um, anyhow, daily wasn't for why did you do that? Uh, that's a book that I, I put a lot into. I care quite a bit about that book because to, to write 365 pieces, because there's one for every day of the year, uh, you know, that's an opportunity to really explore a lot of different issues in the in the lives of abused women. Mm-hmm. And I end each of those pieces with a with a proposed focus for the day, like uh, just a, a kind of line, it's almost like a mantra you might call it, but like a line to give yourself to kind of work from for the day. So that's another one I would love people to know about. Yeah. Well, and I want to point out, should I stay or should I go? Right. Because that's a such a distinct question for so many women. So you co-authored that one. Right. Right. With Jack Patrice. And the other thing that that book does that the other books don't do is go into some issues beyond just issues of having an abusive partner. They also go into issues of having a an alcoholic or drug addicted partner or into having a partner with really serious mental health problems. So sometimes that helps answer some questions about, well, what, what is the, what is the essential problem going on with him? Like what what is he really suffering from? No, I love that. So definitely one of the main questions that my ladies have for you is, you know, how many success stories have you seen? You know, if they get them to the right person or they get them to, um, I, I send people this morning to your checklist of, is he really willing to change? Is the abuser really willing to change on your website? And, you know, how many, what are the chances really? You know, the, the, it's one thing I always like to make sure that people understand is it's not like a surgery somehow that like might succeed or might fail or has a certain success rate because it entirely has to do with whether he does the work or not. So it's, it's, it's as if you were going into a surgery that was totally going to succeed or fail, depending on how hard you tried, not how hard the surgeon tried, how hard you tried. And so the great majority of abusers are actually capable of doing the work. The only ones who like literally couldn't do the work are ones who are severely drug and alcohol involved or who are severely personality disordered. Uh, the rest could do the work. And but so the issue isn't that that the program doesn't work or that they're in the wrong service or that somehow the counselor isn't doing it right. 
The issue is they're not willing to make to do the to do the work. The work involves looking really hard at themselves. First of all, the first thing they have to do is admit to everything they've done in all the ways that they've mistreated their partner and and really the full they have to take a full inventory of all the ways that they've mistreated past partners. Unfortunately, most abusers fail at step one. They're not willing to do any real serious admitting. They're particularly not willing to admit to her. Yeah, you know what? You were right all along. I was doing those things. You know, as, as a lot of your audience, as, as a lot of your, as a lot of your audience will know, the abuser a lot of times lies to her about what he, she just saw him do. Like she'll say, "You just called me such and such a name," and he'll say, "No, I didn't." Mm-hmm. And can and, you tell the story? It was in one of your books about you were running a uh, group for men. And then they was like recorded. I, I'm pretty sure this is in your book. And then you left and they caught the recording and they were giving each other tips and tricks to. Oh, no, they, 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 they were, they were doing that right in front of us, right in front of us. The, the, what it was, was that the, the two counselors were preparing a skit to give at a conference mm-hmm. uh, to, to illustrate, you know, what goes on between an abuser and the abused woman. And they decided to, to rehearse it before the conference for the abuser group. And the abusers immediately started to give uh, David, who, who was playing the abuser, all these tips. And it was one of the things that really showed that, that they have much more awareness than they admit to having about what they're doing and why they're, why they're doing it. And then to really make changes, they have to totally give up blaming the woman. Like, you made me do it. Or, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll change this, but only if you change this. Like, all that bargaining stuff has to stop. And... They then they have to be willing to work on themselves for years, literally years. Like they're not going to go to 16 weeks or something like I've heard of these absurdly short programs. It takes them, it takes them years, and I would say two to three years minimum of really hard committed work. Well, part of what abuse is all about is about how selfish the abuser is. Now he's not necessarily selfish in town. A lot of times he's Mr. Generous out in town, but in his relationships, he's so selfish. So how are you going to get a guy who's got such a selfish orientation towards relationships to devote like three years of his life to working really hard on himself and making her needs the priority, making like making it the priority to learn how to treat her properly. So I hate to say it, but the the reality is very few guys, even though the great majority could do the work, they're a very small percentage actually are willing to do the work. And the, the good news for, for women is it's actually pretty easy to tell whether he's really doing the work or not. If someone tells you what to look for, like you were saying, like you give your audience some, some pointers about what things to look for. And that's exactly right, because, because otherwise you're looking for the wrong things. If you know the right things to look for, you'll be able to tell whether he's serious about doing it. And things to look for as in not always having to get their way, it not always being their turn. Um, not setting rules, setting all the rules of the relationship and breaking all the rules of the relationship, right? Is that yes, and, and, and things like things like not just changing how he deals with not getting his way, but but changing how he deals with her being angry. Like, has he actually started to accept her right to be angry with him? And there's and, a line in your book, and it said he doesn't have a problem with anger; he has a problem with your anger. Right. right. And I'll never forget reading that. Yeah. Right. Because he, he really doesn't believe a partner has a right to call him out on stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, he thinks he's like above being called out on stuff. And uh, so that's one of the ways you can tell if he's serious about changing is, is he actually starting to accept 
being seriously confronted and being being seriously confronted about stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, one other thing I think that's important for for women to understand is the work that he has to do is so hard over such a long period of time that if he can't even start it, he's never going to finish it. Mm-hmm. And I, I and I say this because a lot of women think, well, I'll, you know, I'll just pay for his first couple sessions, or or I'll drive him because if if he just gets in the door. And I understand why. I mean, I understand she wants that hope. I totally understand she wants that hope. It's just unfortunately not a realistic hope. It's like, oh, if I if I can just get him in the door, he'll start he'll start to see that it's not so bad. That's not how abusers work. Abusers don't want to do the hard work. They get pissed off when people challenge them about what they've been doing. And if he can't even get himself in the door, he's never going to do two, three years of work that he has to do. So don't, you know, don't hand him a check for the first session. Don't drive him. Don't, don't, don't say, well, I'll make the phone call to make the appointment. Because if he can't do those things, he's never going to do the rest. And, you know, these men just are not good at loving others. Right. Is that is that fair? Uh, that, no, that actually really varies. That actually really varies. They're not good at loving others in the context of an intimate partner relationship. But some so of I, these men, yeah, are, some yeah. of these men are very loving towards their parents, towards their siblings, towards their best friends. But in the context of an intimate partner relationship, he's he, he can't be fair. He's unwilling to be fair. He can't do give and take. Everything has to be about what you're doing for him. Again, early in the relationship, he's Mr. Generous. Oh, we're going to make beautiful music together. But as soon as the relationship's gotten solid and serious, it's all about what you got to do for me, what you got to do for me. You do for me. And, and do you see that as a pattern? Because the reason I ask that question is, oh gosh, he's treating her so well, right? Like I put in all these years and now look, he's treating her so well. And I want to really break through that, <laughs> that lie. So, so two things about that. First of all, it's probably not true, but if it is true, it won't last. He, he can be very good for a while to a new partner while he's on a campaign against his old partner. Mm-hmm. In other words, when that's actually part of his abuse when mistreating her is actually when, I mean, when being good to her is actually part of how he abuses his ex-partner. And, you know, that's so painful when you've been left by an abuser and then you see him like parading around this other girl and she's often like younger and, and, you know, he'll try to find someone who's extra pretty or whatever. That relationship doesn't last, mm-hmm. but it, it sure hurts while it's, you know, it sure hurts to watch while it's happening. Well, no, he can't be, he can't be in a, a serious relationship without abusing. He can't be in a relationship that lasts any length of time. without. Mm-hmm. And what about uh, as a parent, right? You know, these men, whether they be address violence, obviously, but then just manipulation. Can you, can you speak of that? Well, yeah, first of all, you, if you're abusing children's mother, you're a rotten parent because there's hardly anything worse you can do to your kids than to abuse their mother. So when, when I have guys say, oh, yeah, I've done some bad things to her, but I'm a really good father. I say, no, you're not. That's terrible fathering in itself. Like, that's hurting your kids a lot. Um, now, that doesn't mean that every, every guy who abuses women abuses children. It just means that every guy who abuses women is doing children a lot of harm and is being incredibly selfish and irresponsible about how his behavior is affecting them. Uh, There's just so many different parenting styles among abusers that it's hard to, it's hard to cover all the different ones, but some of the key things are where he's terrible to them too. Another style is where he's quite good to them, especially when he wants to turn them against her. In other words, when it's kind of part of his power trip. Uh, Another style is to be 
you know, more or less okay with them, except refuse to look at how badly he's hurting them through how, what he's doing to their mom. And then another style that, that I think is important for, for people to be aware of is the style that really wants to mess up those kids' relationship with their mother and often really wants to mess up those kids' relationship with each other. The real splitter style right. abuser. He, so, he sows divisions. He, he, if, if there's a custody battle, he's going to do everything to try to destroy those rela- kids' relationship with their mom so that they'll ask to live with him. So that's, a, that's, a, that's an especially toxic well, yeah. And what advice would you give to moms? I know that's a huge problem and I'm asking you for a quick answer, but um, where would you tell them to start? Well, the interestingly, I, what I would most tell her to start is to expand her own support system. Mm-hmm. And, and people are sometimes surprised. Like that's what you say she needs to be doing about her parenting. Yeah. You're going to, you, you, the main thing is you need a lot more people behind you, you know, for better friendships, repair your relationships with your relatives, if you can be in a support group for abused women or a betrayal support group or whatever kind of support group is right for you. And uh, because the, your children are, you're going to, you're going to have a harder parenting life than a, than a mom who's got a responsible co-parent, even compared to other divorced moms, you're going to have a hard time compared to a woman who divorced a guy who wasn't an abuser. In other words, someone who was willing to be a some kind of responsible co-parent with her, mm-hmm. and so the, the then the next thing is to really have to think you have to think about how to keep your maternal authority because the abuser tends to undercut your your parental authority with your kids, and it's that's not easy. It's very hard to maintain your authority while the other person is undercutting it. There aren't Can easy I answers. Can I dive but... into that just one second? Yeah. What, and what he's saying for my listeners is, right, if your kids see him as the person of power and see you as the person of weakness, you are, is a complete uphill battle. And, you know, that, and it's hard to stand up to him. It's hard to stay, especially if he's been awful. But if your kids see you as the dog that keeps getting kicked with all the sympathy and love for that situation, they see you as a weak dog and him as their protector. And that is inc- an incredibly dangerous situation. So as you think, oh, I don't want to set boundaries. I don't want to do the work of um, going toe-to-toe with him. You're not a bad mom for going toe-to-toe to him. You're showing your children your strength. Is that, are you agreeing? I, I think that's right. And and you also have to forgive yourself as long as you do your job as well as you can do it. You have to forgive yourself for what happens. Because, for example, some days going toe-to-toe with him just Isn't gets them hurt. No. It just makes, it just makes things worse, you know, depending yes. on how he reacts or who yes. he decides to punish that day. Yes. Like some of abu- some abusive men are the style where the woman stands up to him. He doesn't punish her for standing up to him. He punishes the kids for the fact that she stood up to him. Then I what's she going to do? You know, then, then she's really in a terrible bind. So it takes a lot of creativity. Mm-hmm. It takes talking to your kids practically every day of the week about the need to respect each other and respect themselves and respect you. And I think the courts don't agree with me about this, but I think it, it, it requires talking to the kids quite directly about the abuse they've witnessed. It doesn't mean saying bad things to them about their father, but it does mean saying some critical things to them about their father's behavior. In other words, don't can say bad things about him. Yeah. Can you give some examples of that for, for my mom's listening? So in other words, you don't want to say he's a jerk or he's an abuser or your dad's selfish, but you want to say things like, 
you know, that wasn't acceptable. That wasn't appropriate what he did there. That hurt you. You know, that's not okay. A parent shouldn't do that. Or it wasn't acceptable the way he was talking to me. And you're talking to me in ways that you heard him talk to me and it wasn't okay when he did it and it wasn't okay when, when you do it. Those are the kinds of examples of, of having to go pretty directly at what the kids have witnessed and what the kind of model, the kind of very unhealthy model that their father has set for them. Mm-hmm. One of the things I tell my women to do is if their kids are talking to them in the way that their ex did is use the phrase, I don't let people talk to me that way anymore. Because if the kids saw it and they thought that was normal, it kind of gives the kids a new signal. There's a new mom in town, right? It's like, I know I put up with that before, but that is not who, that's no longer who I am. Um, and, and on some level, kids like the idea that mom is growing. Oh, absolutely. And, and they also like the, by the way, they also really like the idea that mom's got more support in her life. So it's good to tell kids, I agree with oh, that. I have more friends than I used to have, or, or I have more people there for me. The kids actually really, kids really like uh, hearing that. Uh, but another thing building on what you just said, which I thought was exactly right. I, I would then also add, and I don't want you to let anyone talk I, to you that way. Yes, uh, yes. Try, try to keep making kid, the connections with kids. Like the way you're treating me is how other people are going to treat you. Mm-hmm. And so how about you treat me well? And let's also insist that other people treat you well. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. I love that. Um, and I agree completely with the support system. And if there are any people in your life willing to talk, say nice things about you in front of your children, um, that's a huge piece of this puzzle. Oh, your mom's a great mom because, and and give that gift to your other divorced mom friends, right? You know, such a gift to be around the table and say, you're so lucky to have your mom. Do you see the things she does for you and how kind she is? That's a huge piece of women supporting women in, in this process. That, that's a really good point that I don't hear other people making. I really like that. And, and, uh, and, and if you have male friends that can do that, that'll have, Absolutely. that'll have a power of its own and, you know, uh-huh. because. The one thing that we really don't want is we don't want kids in, in thinking that their dad defines what it means to be a man because yeah. we don't want them. We don't want them to follow that image. And people think, oh, boys really need good male role models. Well, girls really need good male role models, too, because the boys are deciding what, what how, to, how to be a man. The girls are deciding what should they expect from men in their lives. And so it's equally important for the girls. And so it's really great if you have a brother who's a great guy or just a friend who's a great guy to have them around your kids. So the kids see like, this is manhood. Manhood isn't about being a jerk. And they also then see him treating you with respect or him making the kind of comments you were just talking about, about, oh, God, your mom is such a cool person or, or you know, she's really thinking about you. Mm-hmm. And this is manhood. Manhood isn't being a jerk was not a conversation about a father, right? You did not say this is manhood. See, he's not a jerk like your dad is, right? Like that's the wrong way. (laughs) It's almost like subliminal messaging, right? But in a, in a way that it's just about parents teaching their children good skills. We get it in our head like, Oh, that's like bad because it's about their dad. No pointing out positive male role models has nothing to do with bashing their father. Those are two, you would do that in any circumstance in, you know, uh, in a good teaching moment. That's right. If kids ultimately make a connection to what you're saying to their dad, it's because there's a connection to their dad that they need to make. And it's like, they're not going to connect to their dad if their dad's not like that. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Okay. So a couple of people were asking questions about what changes you've seen in the last, you know, five, 10, 15 years, whether it be court systems, the conversations around abuse, what, uh, what have you seen? 
Well, let me, maybe I'll break them into categories of sort of where I really have hope and what are the things where I'm most concerned, things that I think Not are going the wrong way. Yes. So on, on the positive side, yeah, conversations are really changing. Like the, the American culture, and I don't know if you're, your audience may be abroad as well, but I can really only speak to what's going on in the U.S. and to a lesser extent Canada. But American culture has come a long way. There's just much less acceptance of abuse than there was, say, 30 years ago. There's much more support for an abused woman. You're much more likely to hear you don't deserve to be treated that way instead of, well, you know, you, you've got to make the relationship work, which is the negative message. Uh, you're much more likely to be able to find information on, uh, online, uh, in a book, or you know, other sources, so a program to give you some help and support. The uh, there was at least a period of time when police were responding more sensitively nationally, and at least a period of time when judges were responding more sensitively nationally. Uh, healthcare providers, you, there's a, you have a better chance now than some time back that, that a doctor maybe will know something about abusive relationships, and he or she might ask you a helpful question or give you a helpful pamphlet. So there's some things to be really hopeful about there. Uh, finally, in our time, faith communities are starting to have this conversation. And that's really important because so many women are involved in their, their church or their synagogue or their uh, mosque, wherever they may go. And if that's a place where you can actually talk about abuse and get supported about abuse, that's really, really helpful. Versus, again, negative messages you may get from some faith communities that, that your love will heal him, which it won't, unfortunately, or that she that she needs to work harder somehow at being better and that that's what's going to get him to stop being abusive, which that, it has never once worked in the history of the human race. It has race. never once worked in the history. Like, I just want to like, I agree completely. I want to say has never once worked. So if there's some cognitive dissonance going on in your head and you're thinking, oh, but I just need to be more loving, more giving, more forgiving. You cannot be so unselfish that you teach someone else to be unselfish. Maybe it's like when their kids growing up, maybe that we need boundaries with our kids too, right? But we've got to get that piece out of our head that we just need more loving. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But no, so. no I, think, I think it's really good. To, I'm glad you underlined that point. It, it, partly because the abuser is constantly sending you the message yes. that if you would just change what you do, then I would change what I do. And it, it absolutely never works. A, a woman cannot change her abusive partner's behavior by making any changes or improvements in what she does. Uh, the only things that will sometimes, not even very often, but sometimes will change his behavior is leaving him, mm -hmm. no contact for substantial periods of time, like months at a time, or if he's uh, committing a crime, like assaulting you physically, calling the police and having him arrested. Yeah. And again, even those steps will only happen, will only help a small percentage of the time. You can't by being more loving. Like, you know, that I talk about how people tell abused women that they should stand up to the guy more and that they should stand up to him less <laughs> and that that'll solve the problem. Well, how can opposite solutions solve the problem? And the truth is neither of them will work. And I like to point out to women, sometimes it's the same person in your life who's telling you you should stand up to him more and you should stand up to him less because they're well, saying- oh, the analogy of the big bad wolf, right? Like, so you have the three little pigs and they had different levels of boundaries that none of them changed the big bad wolf. He still wanted to gobble them up. Every oh, time. I like that. I like right? that. I like um, that. Yeah. So 
so where do you still see concerns? Um, you know, where? So the, the, there's a long way to go in faith communities. And that's an issue that a lot of people are, are really trying to work on now is to get women better supported in their, in their religious communities. So that's really important. Uh, the, the custody courts are not, or have become actually worse than they were when I came into the field. They've become a more unfriendly environment for abused women. This is what, this is what my, my, my latest book is about, which won't, won't be out for many, many months still, maybe as much as a year, but I'm, the, my, new, my new book is about what's going on, what's happening to abused women specifically in the custody system. Uh, except it's a novel. I'm writing, I'm, I'm in the midst of writing my first piece of fiction there. Oh, uh, yeah. I decided I'd try to bring you this information in a form that was a little more entertaining. Uh-huh. Um, I think your books are very entertaining. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is also a book where it'll be easier to hand to someone else, you know, like you just right, want to right. hand it to someone who's never had this experience and just say, oh, here's a fun mystery to read. And uh, so that's huge cause for concern. There's uh, po police responses actually going backwards after a period of time when it was getting a lot better. And the child protection response is going backwards after a period of time when it was getting a lot better. So some of the gains we made have have are starting to slip away in recent years. The the unfortunately the whole uh, sort of world of domestic violence services has become such a huge system of powerful nonprofits that it has actually backed off from really raising hell about the kinds of issues that we have to raise hell about. So I encourage people to in the years ahead to, to kind of put on an activist hat in a sense more than a social worker hat. And think we've got to go back to really yeah. protesting, and and this has to go back to being a women's rights struggle. There are people who say, "Oh, well, you know, domestic violence used to be thought of as a women's rights issue, but now we're realizing that it's an issue that affects men too, and we want to not sort of focus on it anymore as a women's rights issue." Well, yes, it affects men too, but when what when you stop focusing on on it as a women's rights issue, what do you get? You get exactly what's happening in the last five to 10 years, which is what I've just been describing, all these areas in which we're starting to lose ground instead of gain ground. The precise reason why that's happening is because people have backed off from focusing on domestic violence as a women's rights issue. So we've got to go back to that. Mm -hmm. I love that. And it's, I love that. And I started looking at women's issues in general and in my life, like all these wonderful women, like, well, what is their fail? And it's toxic relationships, right? Over and over and over again. And, and really breaking through the cognitive dissonance and breaking through that belief that like, oh, she would never, if she's okay, strong and independent is not the same thing as good at, you know, making sure you don't get into toxic relationships or what I call becoming toxic person proof, right? Lots of strong and independent women have ended up in toxic relationships. Right. Yeah, one, one of the, one of the most one of the most known women in the world at the moment, J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter books, is now talking publicly about her history mm -hmm. having been abused and having faced sexual assault, and that's very courageous of her. And it's yeah. and it's uh, having an important impact. People think, yeah, you know, J.K. If it can happen to J.K. Rowling, it can happen to anyone. I, and I I love hearing women's stories, especially women who um, are victims who aren't victimy. Right. You know, they, these they've come back into their power and speaking from a place of um, healing. So let's talk about the healing strategies. Right. Um, you know, I talk about strength based healing, you know, uh, which I think you would be aligned with, even though we haven't discussed that as much. But we talked about kind of some of the dangers. People think, oh, I can just find any therapy 
any therapist in my, you know, what we used to call the yellow pages, right? We don't call that anymore in the US, but oh, I can just Google any therapist and they're going to be toxic relationship experts, abuse experts. Um, they're going to understand all the tools I need. Um, and that has not been your experience as well as mine. People are surprised. People are surprised to hear that you can get a, a therapy license, whether as a psychologist or as a clinical social worker or as a, uh, you know, marriage and family counselor without having had a single class on any form of abuse. Uh, the, the, those therapeutic fields are catching up so gradually. Some places you have the option of a class on abuse. Some places there's not even any such class, but it, it's not a requirement for your licensure or your degree. So yeah, you really do have to ask questions and, and do quite a bit of exploration to find out who's someone who will know what I'm up against and who will know who will really know this particular territory. I really encourage women to go to support groups and, and that are through the domestic violence programs. And, and some women will say, well, he was never physically violent towards me. And the, a lot of places will completely welcome you into the support group, even if he was never physically violent towards you. And by the way, a lot of times when there was no physical violence, he was horrible to the woman sexually. And it's like, well, that's that's just as violent, even if it wasn't like a, a beating. It's right. just as violent to your body as physical abuse is. And, and but, but even if there was neither, even if it was just pure psychological cruelty, a lot of support groups will say, hey, if, you, if you've dealt with a really abusive man, you're welcome here. Yeah. And the, I emphasize group, I emphasize group just because that's what I've most heard back from women about over my 30 years in the field. That's what women have most said to me. That's what made the difference in my life was the group. But uh, th there are also a lot of different kinds of online groups. And of course, nowadays during the epidemic, nothing is happening in person. So look around for different kinds of possibilities to participate in, in Facebook groups or Zoom groups or different, different kinds of things that are online, either with video or just in writing. And there are some remarkable possibilities out there. And then the, I'm, what well, my book, The Joyous Recovery, is about is, is about preparing people to be part of a, an organization that I'm building called the Peak Living Network, a very loosely run, like open organization that's where I'm really encouraging abused women to start their own support groups because the, I, th I don't believe the whole assumption that you have to find some super experienced, super credentialed person to do this. It's like, no, you can do it. Any, you, who do you think started the first support groups for abused women? Psychologists? No. Women who've been physically battered, battered women, started themselves, started all the early support groups for, for abused women. And it's like, you, there's a phrase. You said. That's why we're here. Well, yeah, exactly. Right. There was a phrase you said that was so important that I want, I do want to point out that so much of therapy is based on, um, you know, kind of diagnosing what went wrong rather than creating a future that can go right. And that was kind of my words. Do you remember <laughs> exactly what you said? But it was that, that diagnosing what kind of went wrong. And rehab. Yeah, that I believe I, I believe we need to get much more down to earth about where healing actually comes from and, and start to have a much clearer plan. And so one of my fundamental messages in the joyous recovery is, first of all, it's very hard to go off and heal by yourself. Yeah, but that's the that's the problem with the whole notion of self-help is that you're going off to help yourself. And actually healing is much more effective when it's like you'll learn how to work in threes and we need to learn how to work in groups. 
And that's what the Peak Living Network is all about, is training people to work in, in twos, threes, and groups and to make healing a collective process. And there, there are other ways that the joyous recovery is different from other approaches to healing, including what you're talking about, about the emphasis on doing strength-based work. That's definitely one of the, that's definitely one of the key concepts from the joyous recovery. Another key concept from the joyous recovery is that our own built-in, uh, like built into our bodies, like biological mechanisms for healing from emotional abuse. For, I mean, from emotional injury uh, have largely been suppressed. Like, been down. Well, yeah. One isn't, of those, isn't that like interesting? Oh, sorry. Yeah. One of those, cause I was putting out some, um, you know, I talk about lion's breath, you know, in my stuff, you even talked about yawning, right? Like getting some of that inner, that bio tapping into that biological piece of us to, to be healed. Right. Uh, so tell about yawning. That was such a fun yeah. thing. Yawning is a yawning is actually a mysterious one because we don't really understand what role yawning plays in the role in the world of emotional healing. But we know that it plays an important role. And how do we know that? We know that because when people are doing intense processing of emotions, they in, almost invariably start to yawn. Like if you watch someone, say a friend of yours or yourself, say someone's really upset and they're crying really hard for like 15 minutes, like, like I don't mean like weepy, like tears going down their cheeks. Type. I mean like, <clears throat> like busting a gut, like crying their eyes out, type crying. Then they stop and suddenly they start to do all this yawning. Mm-hmm. And or you'll see the opposite sometimes. You'll see someone yawn and yawn and yawn and then break into tears. Mm-hmm. And so we get these clues that yawning is somehow in, woven into this process. One of the things that I explain in the joyous recovery is that we come into the world not just built to heal physically, which we know about, right? We know about our immune system in the physical sense, but that we actually come into the world built to heal emotionally. Mm-hmm. And that that is particularly through laughter, crying, uh, trembling and other kinds of uh, biologically based fear reactions that we have that actually release and discharge fear, uh, raging. And I'm talking about just healthy raging. I'm not talking about being a bully towards other people. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about healthy raging away from other people, maybe with a support person, but not towards the person you're raging at. And interestingly enough, yawning. And people will cycle through these. Like someone who's laughing really hard, 10 minutes from now, may suddenly burst into tears. Yeah. Uh, I think I talk in Joyce Recovery about how common it is in a group of friends who are having one of those really fun kind of laughing fits where for 15 minutes, everybody's laughing and nobody can stop. Suddenly someone breaks into tears. Mm-hmm. And, and that's such a common outcome in one of those uh, group laughing fits. And then everyone starts to feel bad. Oh, you know, and it's like, there's nothing to feel bad about. It's just that our healing processes are interwoven. They're meant to interweave. And so there's reasons why laughter leads to crying and why crying leads to laughter. Because crying will also lead to laughter. It's not just the laughter leads to crying. People end up crying a lot at funerals and then feeling guilty about the fact, oh, God, we shouldn't be crying at a funeral. That's so inappropriate. Actually, it's totally natural. Mm-hmm. Why? Because laughter tends to lead to crying. Crying tends to lead to laughter. They all tend to lead to yawning. We don't really get what Yawning seems like it doesn't fit, right? Like, why is yawning in there? And yet there's some way that it's very clear that yawning is not just releasing physical stress but it's clearly also releasing emotional stress. It's a very interesting and somewhat mysterious process, but it's really, it's really good for me. Actually, I was just talking to someone the other day who specializes in trauma, uh, who was talking about a whole presentation that she had just seen uh, with a trauma specialist working with a very traumatized person uh, through a particularly difficult memory. And she said, 
the woman was just yawning like crazy. She said it was like, seemed like it was coming right out of your book because the woman was just yawning like crazy while this therapist took her through the, this trauma work. I, I thought that was so fascinating. And, and I, I've done a lot of yoga, right? So it's the same thing within like the lion's breath. <sighs> you know, I mean, all that kind of yoga stuff, um, very much healing from our bodies. But Lummi, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Any last minute message you would send out to my ladies? <laughs> well, I, I would love to just quickly answer a couple of the other questions that I most commonly get. Sure. Is one is women very often ask me, uh, if he's apologizing, how do I know if he really means it or not? Or if it's just like a fakey, like apology to get what he wants. And then the a related question is if when he promises to change, how do I know if that's a really serious promise? Or again, if he's just like saying what he wants me to hear. And the answer, interestingly, to both of these questions is it doesn't matter. Women are surprised by this, but the fake apologies and the phony and the real apologies go exactly the same place, nowhere. The fake promises to change and the genuine heartfelt promises to change go exactly the same place, nowhere. So don't worry. Don't put any energy. Oops, sorry. I got to hang on a second. I got to turn off this ringing phone. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> so what Lenny's talking so, so, about. So right? I also, yeah, I also don't put any energy into figuring out whether his apologies are real or not. They, very, they may very well be real. It doesn't matter. The only way he'll change is if he actually starts to do the work of changing the kinds of things that Sarah was telling you. Like, here's, you have to look at the actual work. You'll notice, like, the apologies are not on the list. The promises to change are not on the list of doing the real work because they just don't matter. And I say, look at the patterns, not the promises. Promise it, you know, it, it, what's the pattern of behavior? Is the pattern of behavior changing for an extended amount of time or no? That's how you know. That's, a, that's, that's, that's a, exactly right. That's exactly right. So, so then the other, another question I get really often is, how do I know if he's a narcissist or not? And oh. again, I'm actually going to answer again, believe it or not, it doesn't really matter because <laughs> there's not a good therapeutic, there's not a successful therapeutic approach to narcissism. Narcissism does not respond to therapy. It will respond to some extent to a very expensive and intensive uh, uh, twice a week group and individual therapy called dialectical behavior therapy. Huh? Good luck getting him to go to that. You'll you almost never get him. You almost never get a guy to go to that, an abusive guy to go to that. Uh, so if you discover that he is, he does truly have a narcissistic personality disorder, th that doesn't help you in any way because there's not a service for that. All it really tells you is that the situation is even worse than you thought before because the abusive guy who genuinely does have a narcissistic personality type is even less likely to change. So Again, I would say just don't put much energy into that. And then one more is, uh, is, is, the, is the drugs or alcohol, especially the alcohol is what I hear about the most, is, is that really his problem? And the answer again, unfortunately, is no, that's just making him even worse. But it's not, like, it's not the problem. It's, he's got both problems. He's selfish and abusive, and he's got a sense of responsibility. Well, that's why I say if I have an article called, is he a narcissist or a jerk, how to tell and why it matters. And it's like, if there's, if you're wrestling with a crocodile and you're going, but I need to figure out what breed it is. I need to figure out what breed it is. And you're like <laughs> bleeding and bloody and everybody's like, why are you wrestling crocodiles? And you're like, oh, if I could just find out what breed he is, then I, then he'll change. And like, I just want to say like, all the experts agree that's a bad strategy. <laughs> like, Watch out for those teeth. Just keep your eye on those teeth. That's what matters. If it's a crocodile, absolutely, it's about building a beautiful life after crocodiles and and no longer allowing 
you know, um, creating safety cushions and safety nets around yourself. So you're not bitten and bleeding and your kids are not watching you bit and bleeding. Um, I think that's, I think that's perfect. And then I would also add really starting to look at the kinds of divisions that, that drive women apart from each other. So you're also focusing on building a life where you're not letting yourself be driven away from other women. Oh my gosh. I love that. Yeah. I am. I, in my own life, my, my life goals, love myself, love my kids, love my tribe and give the world a better language to navigate abuse. So I have been following in your footsteps, Lundy, and I am um, so grateful for your work. And thanks for you taking the time out today. Great talking to you, Sarah. Be well and good luck to all your audience. Be, have a great everybody, day. everybody be well out there. Take care. Hello, wonderful. This is Sarah, and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I know that there was something that you can take away to help you get past the past, get real about the present, or get serious about your future. And if I did my job, then hopefully it will help you with all three. If you are not in my Facebook group, Finding Love and Success After a Toxic Relationship, then consider this your personal invitation from me. I'm there live. There's tons of support. And most importantly, tons more information to help you on your journey to become toxic person proof.